Reggie Jackson. An outstanding World Series. Three home runs in one game. Now that was a day I'll never forget. And it helped me to get my own candy hit. Reggie. With a rich caramel center, lots of fresh roasted peanuts, and a super chocolatey covering. Reggie. The candy they named after me. Mmm. Reggie, you taste pretty good. Welcome back to the Boone Podcast. Brett sits down for part two of his special podcast with Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. You have the one year in Baltimore. You end up signing with the Yankees. $2.9 million. At the time, that's huge. Today, like you said, I want to be Garrett Cole. I want to be Garrett Cole, too. Um, but you're coming, to, you're, you're coming to New York, uh, and it's a good team you got. The year before, the Yankees had lost to the Cincinnati Reds in the World, in the World Series. So you're coming to a good team. You, you play there from 77 to 81. You're an all-star every year. <laughs> and just get let's get into the Yankees a little bit. Obviously, you've been you know we've talked you've talked about this a billion times, but it's a huge part in not only Yankee history but baseball history. So let's talk about those years. It's it's seventy seven. Uh, it's it's when you got your name. You were always the Reggie Jackson, great player, power hitter, but you became Mister October in New York. And that's and that's followed you the rest of your life. Uh, let's talk about that '77 season. You end up winning the World Series, and uh, let's talk about that World Series. Buddy of mine is Charlie Huff. I play golf with him time to time. He's getting up there. He he can't hit it as far as he used to, but he still talks about the, those games. And and Charlie Huff was the the third home run you hit in that game. But just tell me about coming to New York. That experience from from Oakland to the Big Apple, and uh, what those years meant to you, and those teams you played with, with uh, you've mentioned earlier, Thurman Munchen, uh, a a big favorite of mine was Lou Pinelli. He was my manager, and and to this day, my <laughs> my favorite my favorite skipper. You know, Lou's <laughs> there's not many like Lou, as you know. Uh, I don't know. I want to talk about the whole thing. Um. You know, at, at that time, you know, I was really wanting to stay in California. And in looking around the teams, uh, I was a first, this was a first year of free agency in 77, 1976, November. Uh, they did it in New York. And I was drafted first by Toronto. I was the first pick in free agency. Um, and I was drafted by Montreal. Um, there were about six teams that drafted me, Baltimore, the Yankees, the Dodgers, uh, and, and somebody else. Um, and I wanted to play for the Dodgers because I lived in California. Uh, I was also drafted by San Diego, the six or seven teams, and um, Yankees, of course. Um, but I looked around the, the game, and I played against the Dodgers, lived in Berkeley, California, and the Dodgers were right-handed. They had Lopes, Baker, Dusty Baker, Ron Say, Garvey, Reggie Smith, the switch hitter, switch hitter, Jaeger, and and they were just all so right-handed that I would have had a feast because I'd have been their only left-handed big bopper. Um, and so they never came to the party. Um, I, I, I had a million a year with Montreal and 800,000 a year with, uh, San Diego. And I, I wasn't really concerned about money because at that time, if you're making three, 400,000 a year for five, six years in a row, you could park some money and be and be set the rest of your life, and I was making two, three times that off the field. So I, I never really cared about the money. It was it was where I was going to play was the focus for me, and I couldn't get the Dodgers to come to the table. Uh, a couple years before in '74, the Dodgers flirted with the A's to trade Don Sutton for me, and they had two pitchers for me to go for to, to the Dodgers 
and I prayed it would happen. I was in Hawaii when that was going on, and it never materialized. Al Campanis was the general manager, and I was thought I was going to wind up with the Dodgers in, and it wasn't so much that I wanted to get a get a, a away from uh, be traded or anything, but uh, I wanted to you know stay in California, so. Go, going to free agency and all that kind of stuff really broke my heart. Um, I didn't want to leave. Uh, I, I, I was leaving the family and all that kind of stuff with the players that I grew up with, uh, Duncan and Rudy and Fingers. And those guys, when I played with them in the minor leagues, really took care of me as as the only colored player uh, and those are the terms in those days. That's why I still use them sometimes. Uh, black player on the team. Uh, they looked out for me. The manager, Johnny McNamara, watched over me, made sure that if I couldn't stay in a hotel, we'd pull up, he'd take the whole team and we'd drive till we could find the place where I could stay. If I couldn't eat in a restaurant when we were traveling in the bus, then he'd, the whole team wouldn't, wouldn't go in. We'd go somewhere where I could be included. And so those things that I grew up with and lived with, you know, were painful, uh, uncomfortable, and you, and you never forget them. So, you know, I, I didn't really want to leave uh, the teams I was playing on. And so, as I said, going back to free agency, Brett, I wanted to stay in California and stay, stay close to home. The Yankees offered me the the best opportunity to play with a team that was good. And I had a chance to play on the stage in New York and compete against the Yankee and its history Yankees and its great history. I had an agent back then by the name of Gary Walker. And he said that the best place for you is to go to New York. <clears throat> and I just had prayed that the Dodgers would get in the game. I turned down the money from San Diego. I turned down the money from Montreal. I didn't figure it made sense for me to play in Canada. I needed to play in the United States. Um, uh, from from there, uh, I went to New York, and Charlie and uh, George Steinbrenner uh, met him once, and then we met again twice, and we worked on a contract with my agent, my attorney, and my dad and figured something out. And that money was 600,000 a year for five years. <clears throat> so uh, from there, I, we shook hands. And uh, I wrote on a note that, you know, looking forward to playing for you. Uh, and I will hit 280 with uh, 30 home runs and drive in a hundred for you. And so that next year in 77, oh, before, when I got home after agreeing to that on a napkin um, in Chicago, my agent didn't travel. So all the teams came into Chicago to talk to us. Uh, Montreal, San Diego, um, uh, the, the Yankees, Baltimore Orioles, because I was thinking about staying there. I offered the Orioles a five-year deal for a million five to stay there and then to pay my mother 30000 a year for five years and my dad 30000 a year for five years. Um, because I, I, I got my dad paid wherever I went outside the contract. I got him an additional 1500 a month. And the Yankees paid it. And then the Angels paid it when I was here also. So... Uh, the sad thing for me is the Dodgers came in after I had gotten back from my meeting with Steinbrenner. I hadn't signed a contract, but I was there with my dad, and we shook his hand. And in those days, um, a handshake was a big deal. And so we couldn't breach the contract, and they offered me $3 million as a starting offer through Maury Wills. Um it came uh, through Maury Wills and uh, the, the the general manager at the time still was Al Campanis. And it just broke my heart because I got to stay in California. And like I said, 
I was going to see right-hand pitching in a fastball league, and I'd have been a murderer <laughs> uh, playing in the, in, the, in the National League because I always thought the ballpark was small. Everybody would say it's a pitcher's ballpark, but I always thought the ballpark was small because you could you hit a fly ball out of left field pretty easy. And so that's usually how I gauge the ballpark, how easy it was to get the ball over the left field fence. But uh, it didn't happen, and uh, Dodgers had great pitching. It was a great organization. And then, of course, the Yankees, uh, with the organization and being run by Steinbrenner, um, Steinbrenner was a first-class act all of the way. He was tough. He was harsh at times. did crazy shit sometimes. But um, he was a champion, and, and no matter how you cut it. So it was a great uh, – uh, place for me to wind up. Um, when I got there, of course, you know, they had already been in the World Series. I got swept by the Mets. And uh, Thurman Munson really was a big piece of me getting there because they had a chance to get Joe Rudy and Bert Campanaris. And uh, Thurman told George, if you're going to go get somebody, go get the big guy in Oakland. And uh, so through that, um, George got confirmation. Billy Martin wasn't happy about it. But uh, Thurman Munson was one of the big reasons I wound up uh, with the Yankees. And so, of course, uh, getting there was, was, you know, super special. There isn't a baseball player in the world that didn't want to play in Yankee Stadium. It was kind of like the cathedral of baseball. It was the mecca of baseball, Yankee Stadium with all their players of, uh, in the past, from Ruth to Gary DiMaggio and Mantle and Yogi and Whitey and Elston Howard, and all those guys in their greatness. Um, you know, the stadium just stood out above every, every place you could possibly play. Remember the first time going there in, in 1968 with the A's, you just went to the ballpark early and walked out on the field. You walked to Monument Park. And, uh, you know, the ballpark was so big that they left the batting cage in center field during the game. It's it. You mentioned you mentioned that it is it's such an unbelievable stadium. You know, I've had some Yankee guys on and we talk about the same. I had Paul O'Neill on last week and we talk about that stadium. And, and it is it's different. It was my I, I loved Anaheim Stadium it was probably my favorite place to hit. But. Man, I'd be looking at that USA Today and going, oh, I'm going to New York in three weeks. And it wasn't when I was going to play the Mets, but when I was going to play Yankees. There's just something different. You can't explain it to people. They've got to witness it. They've got to be on the field. I've got I got to play a World Series there when I was with the Braves. And I remember just doing, you know, getting my sprints in before first pitch and looking around it and Man, I got goosebumps. Like I'm somewhere pretty special right now, and and you yeah. can't pinpoint it. You gotta live it. But it but it is awesome. You also you also yeah. talked about George Steinbrenner, and uh, another thing, players around baseball. We have such a short time to win, and I think all of us from afar that were never New York Yankees really envied the way. You know, George, like you said, he was tough. He could be critical. He, he could say some things that weren't that nice, you know, to a player. But I'd trade that all in because I knew when it came crunch time, all he wanted to do is win. And those 25 yeah. guys in that clubhouse, when they know mm-hmm. the top dog, he's got your back. Uh, it's definitely a, a, a different a different thing. I, I always envy that about the Yankees. And deep down, you're right. I thought maybe later in my career, last couple of years, you know, I get to play in New York. It never happened for me, but but it was definitely a thought that was in my mind. Yeah, yeah. New York is a special place and always will be. I'm grateful for the time I had there. Really a very, very special place in the Steinbrenner family. Very special to me, always will be. Billy Martin? Uh, that was tough, awkward. Uh, strained and um, it never really understood 
why we didn't get along. I was talking to somebody the other day about him, uh, a friend of mine. He's an old Teamster guy that worked with Jimmy Hoffa. He's 88 years old. And he's, uh, I got a group of guys I, I talk to about direction in life and making change and doing different things, et cetera. And, uh, we talked the other day and I, you know, he said, um, he's reading a book written by Ray Negron, who's a uh, part of the Yankees still and been with the Yankees since he's about 18 years old and he's 63 or four. He wrote a book and, uh, this buddy of mine was telling me how he really enjoyed it called Yankee miracles or something like that. And he said, Reggie, you know, he talks about Billy Martin and you and George. And he said, he had great relationships with all three of you. He said, that's pretty honorable that this guy could pull that off. And I said to him, you know, I never really understood why I wasn't one of George, um, Billy's favorite guys, why we didn't get along. We came from similar backgrounds. Uh, Billy Martin was uh, a mix, um, part Portuguese, and uh, his, his name was Martinez, and he shortened it to Martin. Uh, part Italian, and um, you know, you never—I never really understood. He was from Berkeley, California, and I never really understood why we didn't really, you know, have a closer relationship that pulled the wagon together rather than to be so far apart in philosophy and thought processes. Um, he was a, a guy that dug hard, worked hard. Um, and, uh, you know, he had some other issues and demons, if you will. But, you know, we all got issues. And um, I just never figured out why. And, you know, don't, I don't really want to say anything bad because uh, it, it's just not what to do when a man's not around. Something else interesting about this New York. You go from number nine. Yeah. Always been your number. How did how'd you come about 44? I think there's a story behind that. Um, yeah, I, I wore number 20 for the first month in spring training because I, I learned and started developing my game after Frank Robinson. I played winter ball with him. And, um, you know, so with that, uh, I wanted I, I was going to wear number nine, but Greg Nettles had number nine with the Yankees. And Greg Nettles was already an established star. And so uh, I was a big admirer of Henry Aaron and an admirer of uh, Willie McCovey. I learned a lot about the game of baseball from Willie McCovey in Arizona when I trained in Arizona with the A's. I had great respect for him. I went to lunch. I went to dinner all the time with Fergie Jenkins, Billy Williams, and Willie McCovey for about five years in Arizona in spring training when I was with the A's. <clears throat> so I had a great deal of respect for that number. Well, I wore the number 20 and I kind of didn't like the I didn't like the way it looked. I didn't like it. So I was going to wear number 20 for Frank Robinson, but I wore, I changed that at the end of spring training when Bucky Dent came here, he liked the number. So I gave it to him and I took number 44 when we sold a guy named Terry Whitfield to uh, traded him to the Giants. And I took that number. And uh, that's that story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so we go on from the Yankees. We're going to go back to California where you want it. You got the Cowboy, Gene Autry. You had some interesting owners in your career, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I, go I, to the I really liked I really like playing for the Cowboy. Go ahead. No, you play for the Angels from, from 82 to 87. You're an all-star 82, 83, and 84. It's a time where this is, this is the time when, when I had the opportunity uh, to meet you, when you and Dad played together. You know, that was a team I remember as a kid. You know, Freddie Lynn and Donnie Baylor, Rod Carew, uh, Sutton. You had Bobby Gritch. That was a good team. But uh, talk about coming back to California, where you always loved to play. It wasn't the Dodgers, but it was the Angels. And uh, talk about your time there a little bit, that team, uh, that time in your life. Um, yeah, that was uh, toward the end of my career. I still had a little bit left. Uh, I didn't want to leave the Yankees. 
but I couldn't get a deal with them. And uh, they had a hitting coach there by the name of Charlie Lau, and he told uh, George that I think Reggie is uh, going to be muscle-bound. His muscles are too tight, and he's going to break down, and all of a sudden he's going to wake up one day and his, he won't be able to hit, something like that. And so uh, I didn't get signed by George. They had signed Dave Winfield for 10 years for $2 million a year. And um, I wanted a three-year contract for seven fifty a year. And so I couldn't get that deal done. <clears throat> and so um, I went on and went to Anaheim. And uh, I signed a five-year contract for about seven and a half or eight million bucks. Um, I signed for a million a year and an attendance clause. And I'd asked them what their highest attendance was, and it was somewhere around two million and ten thousand. And I said, "Well, I'll take the attendance clause from you, all over two million. I get a dollar a head." In the first year, we drew two million eight hundred and seven thousand, set an American League record. And I knew a little bit about it because when I played for the Yankees for the five years, along with the Yankees being the great brand that they were, um, we had the highest attendance of every team that we went to when we played away from home. And we had their highest attendance of the year for five years whenever the Yankees were in town. And so I knew that would help me. And, um, when I went to Anaheim, we became the biggest draw in the league. We had good team, good players, a lot of stars, and uh, played good baseball, hit a lot of homers with Donnie Baylor and Bobby Gritch and Brian Downing leading off. That leadoff hitter hit 30 home runs a year. Your dad came to us with a big name, and we had Sutton and, you know, some really good pitching. Doug DeCensus played third. And we were a hell of a baseball team. But we set the record for attendance for every year for about five years, buddy. And I cleaned up on the contract. <laughs> How was that, too? Because you know all your teammates knew in that clubhouse, like, hey, Reggie's got the attendance clause. So Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, so it, it, were it, you it, just smiling at him like, hey, I was a little smarter than you to put this in my contract? No, uh, I never said that. I just uh, – uh, everybody knew I had it. And uh, I knew the day that it was going to kick in. And the first day every year, the first day every year that we had that deal, um, the attendance clause would kick in in around the middle of August. And that meant 30 games or something more to go. And uh, I gave the first day every year to the coaching staff. Bobby Clear and Bobby Knopp and uh, – Gosh, we had an old timer with us uh, that hit fungos. He could throw bad fungos. I remember. Fungos. Yeah, who, and so I, I can't quite think of I can't think of his name, but um, I gave the first day, which was around thirty eight to forty thousand, um, because that's what we averaged, and uh, I gave it to the to the coaching staff, and they split it up every year. And I'll tell you, no. you know, that that's the time as a kid when I was around. And, and I remember, too, you're, you're cleaning up everywhere because in right field, we're playing catch in between innings. You got yes. fans in yes. right field throwing money to you. And I remember Reggie's yes. walking around picking up change. And I'm thinking he's picking up the change. But when this is all added up, I couldn't imagine how much change you actually picked up. I used to I used to pick up a couple hundred dollars a night. I would take it in and put it into the, in, into my locker and gave it to the ground crew. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty, and the ground crew's like, ah, oh, big night, Reggie. Hey, it's getting yeah. better. <laughs> people would, t people would take, they don't have 50 cent pieces anymore, but people would take a 50 cent piece and wrap a dollar in it and wrap a, a 50 cent piece and wrap a dollar around it and throw it out to the field sometimes. But you'd get 
nickels and dimes and quarters and 50 cent pieces and every once in a while a 50 cent piece wrapped up in a dollar but and they would come and clean the field up after i left because you couldn't pick up all the money and i couldn't stand around and pick up all the money i had to just what was around me i picked up and put in my pockets but then the other people would go and the ground crew would go after the game and pick the money up <laughs> and when I went on the road in Chicago and Minnesota and places like that, people threw money on the field. That, people threw yeah, that, money on the field. Yeah. And that doesn't happen these days. That doesn't happen. They, they no. might throw other stuff, but that doesn't happen these days. No. I want to talk about your 82 return. You, you come to, you come out, play for the California angels. But your first return back to the Bronx and the home run you hit off Ron Guidry and what that was like going around the bases and, and how the fans treated you. Because I read about it and I saw it and they were chanting Reggie. And what was that like for you? How emotional was it for you going back to the Bronx where you had made all that history? You'd become Mr. October in New York. What was that like that first time back? Well, I tell you, on the bus, on the plane ride back, I was hitting 180. And uh, I was sitting next to Rick Burleson, the shortstop. And he was hitting 160. This was right in uh, the late April, you know, the season just starting. We were both struggling. And he said to me, Rick, Rick Burleson said to me, he said, I know why you're sitting next to me. I'm the only guy on the team you're hitting higher than. And so we just kind of laughed. And uh, <laughs> on the ride back back to New York, Gene Mock walked by me. And I knew we were facing Gidry the opening day. And he said to me, I know you're struggling, but me knowing you, I know you wouldn't miss this game for anything. So you're playing. Just want to make sure you know that. And he walked away, and I looked at Burleson, and I said, he sure didn't know what I was thinking <laughs> because I was thinking that I wasn't going to be playing, and I was kind of happy. And so Rick looked at me, and he laughed, and he said, ah, no, nah, you'll be all right. And so sure enough, I was facing Gidry, and uh, the first time up, uh, he hung a slider, and I skied the ball to uh, center field. I had a real good swing, made a good move on the ball. And I, I went back in the dugout, and I said, man, I, I got a nice move working. Let me see what I got next time up because, you know, I was struggling a little bit. I didn't know if it was – I didn't know if I had anything to work with, but I had – I knew I had a good move, and I was on the ball. And so the next time up um, – Gidry threw a fastball and I fouled it off and then he threw me another not so good slider hung it and I hit it up in the third deck uh, over there and uh was was a proud moment for me I felt really good I hit a home run off one of the best pitchers in baseball and um the, it was raining and it was raining pretty hard and George was sitting in the Yankee box his box right next to the dugout in the rain and the whole stadium stood up and chanted Steinbrenner sucks for five minutes. And as I rounded the bases, I kind of looked over toward him and I went back into the angel dugout and I got a standing ovation from the crowd and, uh, he got up and walked out. And um, after that, uh, after the game, I kind of stayed around. And when I walked out to leave, I went up the elevator and the elevator door opened and I walked out and there was a couple guys with me and they turned around and George was in the other elevator and he wouldn't get out till I left. And so that was just part of part of the story, you know. That's cool, though. It always but, but feels I, good to come home. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, 
you know, that, that winter after the season, um, you know, it was like 1983 or something like that, 82. And I was driving down the, cause the first year I was not there, the freeway and George was on the radio and he said, through all my baseball career, he said, the biggest mistake I've ever made was trading Reggie Jackson. And he said, I'll always regret that. And then when I went into the Hall of Fame, um, George asked me, he said, Reggie, if you want to come back and I'm happy to give you a party uh, because of your election to the Hall of Fame, no strings attached. And I went back there and uh, we talked and he said, well, I don't know how Reggie's going into the Hall of Fame, but we'd really be honored if he went in as a Yankee and um, I'd be able to find a spot for Reggie here because he's a good baseball man and he's been a great Yankee. And so with that comment, I donned a Yankee hat because I'd wanted to go in as an Oakland A, but I had a, a run in with Sandy Alderson in Oakland. Um, after I retired, I was denied entrance to the ballpark. Uh, and, uh, there was a, old black man that would been there forever security guard. And he said, Miss Reggie said, I can't let you into the ballpark because Sandy Alderson has sent a note out around to check your credentials. And if you don't have credentials, you can't get in. And he said, I know I don't want to stop you from coming in, but I'm going to show you this letter I carried in my pocket because I thought you might come one day. And he said, it's from Sandy Alderson blocking you to come in. Said, you're not allowed in because there's a lot of steroid stuff going on. And they don't want anybody in the ballpark without proper credentials. And I looked at him and I just couldn't believe it. Uh, I turned and went away. I went back. I had owned a Chevy store at the time. And I called uh, Walter Haas, who owned the team. And I said, boy, I'd sure like to have lunch with you one day, talk about something. I said, I was denied entry to the ballpark today. And so I drove over to see him a few days later. We had lunch, and he got it all fixed. fixed. And um, that day, I decided I was not going to go into the Hall of Fame as an Oakland A. Wow. And all because yeah. of that, that letter. All because of the letter by Sandy Alderson. Um, uh, Sandy Alderson and I have since, you know, made amends, but uh, that was something that was in my career I'll never forget. It was just shitty, just a shitty thing to do. Oh, without a doubt. So we go, we finished 86, uh, and you're headed back home where it all started. Back yeah. to Oakland. Yeah. You end up retiring after the 87 season. But how was it coming full circle from the kid at ASU signing with the A's, Kansas City A's, later to be the Oakland A's, and then uh, your last year going back home? How was that? <clears throat> I enjoyed it. <clears throat> I enjoyed living in the same house and uh, playing in the same town. And the first night we came back, for opening night, um, I threw out the first pitch, and uh, oh, I, Mc, 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 uh, I can't think of the pitcher, McAll McAllister or Mc, Mc, it'll, damn it, um, real good right-hand pitcher, good guy, because I played with him there, and I homered late in the game, and like in the top of the nothing, bottom of the nothing, bottom of the ninth to tie it, three to three, hit a home run to left center, opening night. And uh, we wound up losing the game. But um, Kurt, uh, Kurt McAllister, Kurt Mc, Mc, McSomething, um, but I remember homering off him because I played with them the year before. Um, and then toward the end of the year, I hit my last home run in my career. Um, oh, wait a minute. Kurt, you played with them in Anaheim? Yeah, good golfer. Kirk McCaskill. Kirk McCaskill. 
There we Kurt go. McCaskill, I hit a home run to left center off him opening night. And then I hit my last home run of my career. I hit one uh, like in the middle of the season off um, the, the great big, big tall guy, really six foot eight, had a perfect game. A good golfer. Uh, he lives here in Anaheim. Damn, I can't. Oh, okay. Uh, Mike Witt. Mike Witt. Ah, look at uh, me. Look at the brain the only, on me. I drove. I drove in the only run in the perfect game he pitched in 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 Texas, and then for the Angels with him. And then when I played my last year, I hit a home run off him in Oakland, the dead center, and I hit my last home run of my career, either in Anaheim or Oakland, off him, number five sixty three. You know, and I was always proud because he was good. He was a great pitcher. Big curveball. Yeah, good. Oh, yeah, and, and great guy. Great guy. Ten guys have had their numbers retired. Only ten in the history of the game uh, by two different teams. You got your number retired, the A's, number nine, and the Yankees, number 44. How special right. is that to you? How um, it, it, It's special. Um, I don't really dwell on it too much. Um, I, I'm grateful for it. I always wondered why my name wasn't, my, my number wasn't retired with the Angels because I felt like I had a good year here and a good career here, but uh didn't work out. But I've always loved playing here and always liked it. I thought I had a chance to get my number retired in three places, but uh it didn't happen. And uh, I do know that Nolan Ryan and Willie Mays and, you know, a few guys like that had their numbers retired in two places. And it's special. Um, uh, but I guess I'm just, just grateful. I think I know that Aaron has got his number retired in Milwaukee and also his number retired in Atlanta. So there's a few guys. There's It's an elite group. Uh, and I'm just proud to be part of it. You got a plaque in Monument Park part of the A's Hall of Fame. But in 1993, the ultimate, uh, I always like to ask the day you got that phone call, phone call to the hall. Um, and, and, you know, at that point, you, you had all the credentials. You had the numbers, uh, the home runs, the World Series rings, the MVPs. And it's kind of a foregone conclusion. You're going to the Hall of Fame. But is there anything like it when you get that actual call? Um, I don't think so. Not when you reach that, reach the elite level of being one of the greatest players in the history of the game. And you know that you go in there with Ruth and Mickey and Willie and Hank, Ty Cobb and the babe and, you know, Gary and those guys, Whitey, all first names, you know, that, that you, that you know, uh, and you know, throughout the um, throughout the league and throughout the sport, I remember being. I was working for a company called Upper Deck, and I was in my office there next to the president. And I was supposed to get the call from Jack Lang, and uh, he was going to be the guy to call me and tell me. <clears throat> and I was supposed to get it at one o'clock, and it was about one o three. And I remember Raleigh Fingers had said to me, you know, Reggie, I waited around and I didn't get the call on the first ballot. And he said, I didn't know what I was going to get in. I was embarrassed, but I sat there and then the phone never rang. And it was about three minutes after one. And I was the only guy being elected. And um, I looked around the room and there must have been 50 people in my office. And I said, what the hell am I going to do if the phone don't ring? <laughs> so, <laughs> so luckily, uh, you know, a couple minutes after, I looked at the clock. I said, man, it's two minutes after, bro. And no phone. And uh, at, 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 at three minutes after one, it called and he said, Reggie, I just want to announce that you were, uh, you know, first ballot Hall of Fame, 92%, something like that of the vote one of the highest, the blah, blah, blah. 
And so I said, gosh, thank you so much. And then we started playing. Yeah. So it's just a special feeling to be that elite as a player and to be part of um, the best players that ever played. Yeah, it's quite a place. It's quite a yeah. place, and you know, I, I've I, I went back there a couple of years ago to watch uh, buddy of mine getting inducted, and and I never realized, you know, I always watch it on TV, and and I thought it was this little quaint gathering, you know, of the Hall of Famers, and then just their families, and maybe a thousand in the crowd. I had no idea that it was like a, almost a Woodstock <laughs> type setting oh, yeah. and how that, yeah. how it just goes on and on. And I remember being right up front watching, yeah. but just turning around and look at the just droves of people. It's a pretty, yeah. pretty special, pretty special place. Were you there when Griffey went in? No, I was there for Trevor Hoffman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, did you play with Edgar? I played with, I played with Edgar and I didn't go for yeah. Edgar's. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Those guys were there too. Griffey's was special. Griffey was special because he's one of the greatest. And I think he was, I think he was 99% vote, uh, something like that, you know? And, and then, uh, I think he was second highest, uh, cause he, I think he's, I know he surpassed, I think he surpassed Seaver and Jeter. I think he's still ahead of Jeter. Um, and of course, Mariano got a hundred percent. I don't think Jeter got a hundred. No, I, mean, I don't know who the fool. I don't know who the fool was. Uh, yeah, there's a you know, it seems it, right. It seems so remember, silly nowadays. <clears throat> you know, you, you, you remember, see obvious. You remember you see obvious Hall of Famers, and why not a hundred percent? I don't get it. Anyway, I go know, ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it's just uh, I always remember the movie the uh, the. Uh, uh, what, what was what was the the great fight movie that? Uh, let me see, I can't remember the, the guy's name. He fought Clubber Lang, Rocky. Rocky, 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 and uh, Clubber Lang would say, "Who the fool? Yeah, who the fool that didn't vote for?" <laughs> right, it, it is. It's ridiculous. And now you see it. It's like, oh, really? You're going to leave him off? He's not a Hall of Famer. Like Kenny. I got uh, Kenny and myself. We came up at a similar time. He's the best player I ever played with. Uh, and, and, I, and I was fortunate enough to play with a lot of great ones. But Kenny's the best player I've ever played with. And, and to not be 100%, it's kind of like, like you said. Who left him off the ballot? What are you just, what, what was the reason? Can you, I want you to write me a, a, a synopsis of why you didn't put Kenny on the ballot. And, and I want to see the answer because it's so, it's, it's silly. Yeah. Yeah. Who the, who the fool? That's a clever language. Thing. And I, I, at this time, I, and I don't know if you remember this, but I just want to kind of give you a little bit of, I, I don't know. It, it was it was a cool moment in my life. And for those out there listening to Boone podcast, uh, Reggie and I, you know, as a kid, I got to, you know, because him and my dad were teammates, I got to hang around and, and spend some time with Reggie. But when my professional career started, uh, I signed with the, the Seattle Mariners and, and my big league debut was in 1992. Well, one of the first road trips of my professional uh, career in the big leagues was Oakland and we went to Oakland and, and uh, I remember, I think I hit a couple homers that series, but one day, and, and like I said, I don't know if you remember this, I came out of the clubhouse and for whatever reason you were in town, this is 1992. And I, and I saw you and I said, there's Reggie. And I probably hadn't seen you in a few years. And I went over, kind of shook your hand. You gave me a little bit of a hug. You looked at me and you go, kid, I knew you were going to make it. And I'll tell you, I was a, I was a, I was a brash young, young man. I mean, I was cocksure and I was, but I'll tell you, there's a time when the guys that come before you, the Reggie Jacksons of the world. And, and I grew up with a lot of superstar, you know, that dad played with back in the Phillies days and his, in his California days. But for the guys as a kid, when, when you grow up watching and, and, and uh, hanging around, the fact that you took the time that day and said that to me, 
it was a really cool moment in my life, something I'll never forget and, and probably didn't seem like a big deal to you. And back then, you know, people would say, oh, well, Brett, it's no big deal. You know, you hung out with Reggie as a kid. I said, that's different. That was man to man. That was peer to peer. Now we're both big league players. And I just wanted to thank you. I never had a chance to thank you for that. But that was a really cool moment in my life because I was just some young kid trying to make my way, you know, hair on fire. I want to prove to the world that that I belong here (laughs) and seeing you after that game. That that was that was a cool thing. Yeah, it was was, was a nice time. I remember um, uh, sharing a moment with with Cal Ripken Jr. when he first came up. He was a third baseman. And uh, I, you know, said something to him. He was struggling. Robin Yount, Paul Molitor, those guys that I saw. And to this day, uh, I have a special place in their heart uh, when I see them uh, for the memories of a comment I made um, uh, to them. So uh, at the time, I was doing something for the A's. And I knew you were in town, and I wanted to go down and see Booney's son and uh, just say hello to him. So, And every time I would see your brother, uh, Aaron, when he was in the broadcast booth, um, we would always share time when he came to New York, and I could see him on the field somewhere. We always share some, some moments together. So, And it's it, to this same day, um, when I was with the Yankees, he would say, you know, uh, Reggie, just uh, keep sharing. Keep sharing. It was good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, well, we, Goofy, and then we'll get get you out of here. I, I got to know about the naked gun, and this is my favorite. You were on the <laughs> love boat. Now, that's, that's something I grew up with. I think it was, I don't know if it was Thursday night. Give me, give me a little bit of a synopsis on those two, and uh, and and there's something in there about Star Trek that doesn't not too many people know about. What was your favorite role outside of Reggie, the baseball player? Um, I, I think the thing I got the most notoriety notoriety for was uh, uh, the movie. I don't know the even name of the movie, but it, I had I must kill the queen. Yeah, naked um, gun. It was naked, naked gun, and I've gotten so many responses to that. And then there's a movie called Basketball and Benchwarmers. I did about nine or ten movies, and probably a hundred situation comedies from. Uh, oh gosh, I, I you did the Jeffersons. I did the Jeffersons. I did That's that a other movie with Archie. I did Archie Bunker. Uh, I did, uh, you know, so many of those uh, fathers, something like something with the with the short uh, guy Arnold. Oh, oh, oh! Uh, what you talking about, Willis? Oh, what's the name? Yeah, of that? yeah. I, I did that show there. Yeah, and it's father something. But, oh, I can't uh, just, think just, about just, it. Just, yes. yeah. Different oh, strokes. Yeah, different, different strokes. Different strokes. Different strokes. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah, they still run that stuff on TV, and and I wound up doing so much TV and 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 movies that I get two checks, one from Screen Actors Guild and one from AFTRA. In fact, my my supplemental insurance is Screen Actors Guild, so it worked out very well for me uh, being in in the television arena, and I never really pushed it. Um, I got a couple offers and movies that I did with, um, damn, my mind goes blank here so quick. Um, Adam Sandler and he's all, every time I see him, but when are we going to do our next movie? But, uh, it was just, it's just, it's been a fun world, a fun life. And I'm super grateful is, is, is really what I can absolutely say. I am grateful and thankful. And along with that, comes happiness uh, with good health, good friendships, good relationships, uh, good reputation with people in the public. And so I am a very grateful, thankful person. Um, Baseball has been such a great part of it. And um, 
I have no complaints about anything. I'm a thankful person. So, so currently you're with the Houston Astros, uh, Jim Crane, the owner, and you're doing a lot of other work with diversity and inclusion. Uh, you, you're part of Hendrix Automotive, uh, Hendrix NASCAR team. Uh, you, you do some work with Parts Authority and Crane companies. Uh, tell me about what Reggie's up to, all these different endeavors uh, you're doing. Well, the biggest focus, uh, Brett, is trying to level the playing field for minorities and underserved kids. Uh, we have different programs around the country. We just got done uh, implementing one in the city in the outskirts of Detroit where we will ha- put a STEM program, science, technology, and engineering, and math, a complete school system from grade 6 through 12 um, to help with the preparation of uh, minorities to participate within the workforce as to where work is going nowadays in the world of technology. So my foundation has a focus on uh, the underserved and with education, and that is putting a STEM curriculum in different schools, uh, intermediate schools, as uh, in elementary all the way up through grade 12. Uh, we just picked up 2,700 students in the uh, underserved communities through the Department of Education in Detroit. And so we will do our work there. I'm trying to get uh, General Motors to participate and get engaged as well. Um, from there, we'll go to St. Louis and uh, do a similar thing. Uh, we have another million-dollar grant that we'll uh, implement there. And um, we'll do a four-year program of there, and then it'll go in perpetuity from there. Um, so we've done that in the Bronx. We've done it in uh, Oakland, California, in Memphis, Tennessee, and a few different places in other cities around the country. Um, we have our, our uh, curriculum in front of a million students. Um, with the Crane companies, we're working on diversity and inclusion um, the owner there, Jim, is a fantastic person, uh, great man, self-made, uh, created his own wealth, and he is in folk, with a focus now in life of giving back to the communities from where he's uh, made his money. Um, he wants to change the landscape when it comes to participation in the workforce in his companies with minorities and make sure that there's a good balance there and that the percentages with his workforce match um, the population of the city. There's 16% um, African-American and 20-some percent minority there, the Latin-American there. And uh, he wants to make his workforce with his team, uh, with the the Astros of 400 employees, look like the population percentage-wise when it comes to diversity. Um, the Rick Hendrick Group is 150 some odd automobile stores around the United States, 11, 12,000 employees, and so the focus there is diversity and inclusion again as well, and to be able to level the playing field for underserved and uh, people that are struggling for uh, to get uh, connected within the workplace here, and to be able to to move forward and become executives. So he's training people. Um, become, to become executives within his own company, whether they're service managers, uh, whether they're mechanics and become service managers, whether they're salespeople and become GSM, general service managers, or whether they become general managers of the different uh, dealerships that he, he runs um, and, and owns. Um, another gentleman by the name of Randy Buller that works owns a company called the Parts Authority, I am on his diversity and inclusion committee there. I communicate with the lady that runs it. And so most of the experiences that she uh, is trying to interject within the company and implement change, um, I've experienced them or lived them uh, when it comes to being minority and having, you know, some difficulties and having to learn adjustments and having to learn how to fit and work through different problems that other people don't have. Most people don't recognize systemic racism. Most people don't understand white privilege, um, you know, et cetera. So it's, it's working with these things, learning these things, 
uh, and trying to pass them on and trying to figure your way through the social maze of trying to level the playing field. Most people don't know or understand what redlining is. Most people don't understand the fact that African-Americans were not allowed to get a homeowner's loan through the FHA. They weren't allowed that. Most people don't recognize that when they built main thoroughfares and expressways and highways, they eliminated minority communities for exit ramps, uh, turnoffs. They were off the grid of some of the electricity and power lines that were built. And so these things that happened in the past, um, you do your best and I'm trying to do my best to participate, to try to level the playing field, make the world a better place. Um, I had so many friends, whether to be out of Kansas with um, men like David Murphy and Pat George and Dan Tassett and all these guys that have been hugely successful in life that want to contribute contribute, participate, get engaged, and, and make the world a better place. And that includes the companies like FedEx and companies like General Motors and companies um, that I have connectivity with, whether it be the Hendrick Automotive Group and, of course, the Crane Group uh, out of Houston, uh, whether it be Chevron or Halliburton or these people that I'm engaged with and participate with um, that have a focus on making the playing field a little more level and making the world a better place. Very cool. You're busy and you're still, you're still doing it on the field with the Astros. Uh, I enjoy what I do. I'm, I'm grateful for my opportunities. Well, Reggie Jackson, what do you want to be remembered for when it's all said and done? Um, I think I'd like to be remembered for a guy that reached out to try to help make the world a better place. I'd like to be remembered for a guy uh, that was a that was a great friend. And that's it. Very cool. Well, Reggie, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on. Interesting, awesome stuff. And what we do here on the Boot Podcast each and every time is we bring back the the voice of the Boone podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dano. <laughs> Gentlemen, Mr. October, I have a few questions for you if you got a, if you got a quick second for you. Sure. I've had, a, I've had a quick hour and a half. Might as well make it a few more seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking to stretch you. Just looking to stretch. Okay, this one comes from Mark in Bakersfield, and he wants to know, Reggie, do you have any regrets in your career or something that you would like to have a do-over for? Um, gosh, not really. I would really have to say I'm grateful. Um, I think I probably should have focused selfishly a little more on, uh, cutting down strikeouts. Uh, although in today's game, crazily, um, I think that's a word, uh, crazily, uh, they don't care about strikeouts, which is, um, not, not very smart. Um, uh, and, and at the same time, I probably would have chased a, a milestone of 3000 hits. I wound up with about 2,600, but, uh, other than that, I was on great teams, fortunate to have played with great players and was in position to be able to do what I did and create the most out of it. Um, if I would have hit the home runs I hit for a last place team or <clears throat> weren't around the teams like the Yankees and the A's that had great pitching that had great players, then I would not have gotten the recognition <clears throat> or had the chance to earn the accolades I've got. That happens because I was on teams with great players and the list is long. So uh, would I change anything? Not really. Um, I have an understanding of some things that I stood up for. I now understand um, why I stood up for those things. Uh, as a minority, as an African-American, you constantly fought for dignity because you never got it. Um, while one player was a uh, coach on the field, 
the African-American was just a talented guy. And so, you know, those things uh, are imprinted. Uh, and I would really say through it all, uh, to your person that answered the question, I'm grateful and thankful for the opportunities that I was presented with and the good fortune to be surrounded with great players and great teams for me to get the most out of my out of the skills that God gave me. All right, and the final question would be from the same person, and he wanted to know, who, which one of your teams would have the best chance of the 2020 Dodgers from last year? Would it be your 1970s A's or the Yankees team? Um, I think it would have been the A's because the A's had better pitching. Um, the good pitching, the pitching that we had was some of the best pitching that that I can recall as I look back years and years of World Series teams. Um, even the great Cardinals of, of with Gibson and the great teams that Detroit had, the San Francisco Giants. Um, I would go back to the team that would have been most difficult to beat would be Jeter's Yankees. Because Jeter's Yankees had Cone and they had the lefty there, David Wells, um, and the great Andy Pettit and the great Rivera. Um, with the great collection of players that they had, uh, with the catcher and Posada and, and the first baseman and Tino, um, Jeter and, and Brocious, who was a great fill-in guy, Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill, uh, and then, of course, the great Mariano anchoring that. Um, I think that would have been our a team that we might have struggled with or would have been a great matchup. Other than that, um, the teams I was on with, you know, Vida, Holtzman, Catfish, Hunter, and Fingers, Blue Moon Odom, um, and Bando, and, and, and my, myself, we had that three Hall of Famers with Fingers, myself, and Bando, and then you had 20-game winners in Holtzman and, and Blue. And 15 game winner in, in Vida, in, in, uh, um, Blue Moon Odom and near Hall of Famers of Campaneras, Rudy and Bando. So, you know, that, that team there was by far the best team I was on. And I also think that the team that would be most comp- comparable or the team that could have stood the test with us would have been interesting to play, you know, Jeter and the Posada and the Rivera. Headed Yankees. One of the greats to ever do it, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. Thanks for coming on the Boone Podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks, Reggie. Absolutely, Brett. Take care, my friend, and enjoy being with you. Mailbag. Okay, Boone, you know that sound. What is it? Uh, it must be mailbag time, Dan. It is. And we will start off with this one. It's actually a similar one that I just asked. Reggie, Brett, do you have any regrets from your career that you would like to uh, get a do-over or at least get a mulligan on? Um, like that golf I reference? Thi- I think the the thing I would have done different, and I think I've mentioned this before on, on the show, is I would have taken a little more time to stop, look around, and appreciate what I have. And, and not... And, and I say that not that I didn't appreciate being a big league baseball player. I did. But I think we get so wrapped up in ourselves and what we have today and and who we're facing tomorrow and my swing stinks or or uh, I've got to work on this. I got to work on that. Uh, we don't take the time to just kind of, you know, and I know it's a it's it's kind of a cliche, but smell the roses. You know, I wish I'd have gone back and sat there at Wrigley field and taking that in a little bit more or Yankee stadium and just, just enjoyed it. Um, like I said, I didn't take it for granted. I, I appreciated where I was. I appreciated the, the living I got to earn. Um, but if I could do one thing, I, I would have just made sure each and every day I, I, I kind of reflected on, on how cool it is being a major league baseball player. Cause as, as long as I got to play, I played a long time. It seems like it's gone in a flash. 
Well, I guess you were just too heavily concentrated on keeping on being a major leaguer, right? I mean, you're going every day to the ballpark going, well, all right, here's yeah, what I need to do. It's, you're, here's you're what I got to do. About, right, you're worried about tomorrow, you know, and I got to face Roger Clemens tomorrow and Randy Johnson next week. And my swing isn't right. How am I going to get it right? Yeah. So you're constantly. Not a lot of time to go, this is head. a nice ballpark. Right, but I don't know. I just wish I would have. Stop and just stop. Just be still sometimes. Just look around and appreciate stuff. You do that, I think, as you get older. You look at things and go, you you appreciate things more. Reflective. All right. And this last one comes from Ben in Chicago. Brett, who was the nicest big leaguer you met as a kid when you were going to the ballpark with your pops? Nicest. Well, I loved all the players. I I didn't have a favorite. Uh, nicest. Dick Schofield. He was a shortstop with the California Angels uh, in the mid-80s. Young player. <clears throat> but as as uh, dad's teammates go, he was, uh, he was the nicest man I met at all of them. All right. Well, we're going to let Brett uh, ice that voice of his because it sounds like he could use a Ricola. I'm a little under the weather, as you can tell. Well, then that is going to do it for this nice and lengthy podcast, the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer duties all get handled by Rich Herrera. Digital content all gets taken care of by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.